I think that is the narrative shift that I'm talking about, right? I think that's what the organizers that are outside of City Hall can connect with legislators on, which is what I did when I brought forward the Black New Deal. It, we, we moved it forward in 2020. It got co-opted. That's fine. But now I'm bringing it back in a more substantive way that says if you care about an uptick in crime because of COVID, you might want to consider looking at why certain areas that have been uh, redlined or um, or bulldozed and in places where wealth could have been created through people being able to hold onto their homes and having those property taxes go into the public school system and educate uh, young people in a very robust way so they could get uh, living wage jobs. Um, if we look at why that wasn't able to happen, if we look at why certain people were relegated to living in the most toxic places in the city of Oakland and how that has had impacts on health and um, not just on the individual, but the entire community, then we can say when we see these things happening in East Oakland and West Oakland, there is a policy implication and history to those outcomes. There's Carol Fife. Carol is a first-term city council member in the hometown of Oakland. One of the many things I appreciate about Carol is that she is an organizer and approaches her job on city council from an organizer's perspective. Since she's been on council, she and her allies have thought to operationalize progressive values. They tried to address the homelessness crises with compassion. They've tried to ensure that public concerns about crime do not lead to authoritarian responses. They tried to insist that any public subsidy of private sector stadium construction is accompanied by a real commitment to community benefits and an equitable distribution of the risk associated with the project. This challenge to operationalize progressive values is what I call the left's governing imperative. A key component of the fight against the right's assault on democracy is the establishment of a highly functioning public sector that can listen to and advance the interests of working people. Too many people do not feel they have a stake in a democratic society and combined with the continuing anxiety over the reality of declining living standards and status or the prospect of declining living standards and status. Some decide to passively or actively join authoritarian organizations and movements. Others who are disillusioned with the current politics of this country choose to disengage from the, from the political process. Our dreams of a better world rest upon our ability to win large portions of the latter group over to the fight for racial economic justice. During the conversation, Carol, my co-host Lauren Jacobs, and I discussed how to deal with the racism that reduces the life outcomes of black people and impair our ability to build a political coalition needed to forge a better world. We didn't reveal the magic potion that's in structural racism, but our conversation is an important step forward. And even though we reported this show months ago, the content is still timely. I think you'll enjoy this show. But before we get to the show, please listen to this trailer introducing a new podcast. As you know, Black at Work Talk is a Convergence podcast. Convergence is an online platform dedicated to still make debate which can help us forge a world based on a multiracial democracy and a radical democratic economy. The newest podcast to this Convergence family is a show by Sunrise Movement co-founder William Lawrence. Let's hear a bit about this podcast from Lawrence now. Coming in 2023 from Convergence Magazine, a new podcast. What will it be? I'm your host, William Lawrence. I've spent the last decade fighting for justice as part of social movements like Occupy Wall Street, racial justice uprisings, the Sanders campaign, and the Sunrise Movement. Now I'm interviewing friends and comrades to make sense of what we've accomplished together, where we've fallen short, and what comes next. We'll peer into the chaos of the 21st century and ask a simple question of the future. What will it be? Hi, folks. This is Stephen Pitts from Blackboard Talk. 
I'm hopeful we're doing well. I have a co-host here, Lauren Jacobs. Lauren, how you doing? I'm doing well. How you doing? You had a birthday last time since I talked to you. Happy birthday, by the way. Thank you. You had to go and spill the beans to everybody. <laughs> I could tell you how old you are, by the way, and make something up. Um, but I, I won't do that. I did. I publicized it on Facebook. There's no shame in this game. You wouldn't want to publicize it again, by the way? 52 and proud. Very good. Very good. Okay. Um, you're older than me about about 30 years, by the way. So, oh, okay. Um, we'll yeah. see what happens. All right. I guess I'm behind. I haven't retired yet, so I got to <laughs> get going. <laughs> but um, no, serious being serious, I'm, I'm glad you had a good birthday. It's really great. And um, since we last talked, they had their little raid down in Florida where the, the Justice Department decided to execute a, a subpoena to grab some documents that Trump grabbed. Any reflections on the whole, the latest episode in our saga? Well, aside from the cue, the, um, what was that show in the 70s, the British game, like Benny... Yeah, it's Benny Hill. <laughs> Cue that music for much of this because I this is just this is not a thoughtful political analysis. This is just real talk. It always hurts a little when the raid goes to the people that are not in the right in the zip code that the raids usually go to and the color of the folks that normally the raids go to. Um, you know, it's it's par for the course with with um, the Donald. I grew up in New York City and have a long history of watching his antics over the years. Yeah, yeah. Now, I actually have kind of mixed thoughts, even ignoring the, the fact that normally I don't endorse raids by the state, you know? Yes. Uh, um, th to me, the larger issue is that, we've, to, in my mind, I, I have, I'm pulled in a lot of di different directions. The obvious one is no person is above the law. A and Trump flaunts the law and gets away with it. So you flaunt some more. So at some point, you guys say, it ends today. I get that fully, by the way. And I think we have really a political problem, not a legal problem. And I think one of the dangers that we have on the left is we have gotten to have looking for the law to resolve things in the day. And that doesn't work for us. And yep. so I hope that we understand that it is fundamentally a political problem, not a legal problem. And regardless of the outcome of this avenue of the legal, legal battle, the political problem still is there. And, and I think it's important to keep in mind. And um, As evidenced yeah. by the guy that went to the FBI office in Cincinnati. I mean, I'm just, yeah, it, right. It's not, it doesn't, it's not, you're not doing anything to strip the radicalism of the base or the base, you know, that's organizing and contesting and moving, I think maybe not his base, but, but the people that seem to still say, up for grabs for that wing of extreme conservatism that has arisen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and you mentioned organizing; it's a matter of power for Emily, right? And that that's, that's the purpose of this miniseries to talk about power building a bit and, and see how we actually do it. And I've always thought that we had to not just talk about but talk about but be about it. You know, so I'm really excited to have our guest on now to talk about how to be about building power. Um, I welcome on. Carol Fife. Carol, welcome to be on the show. Hello there. I'm glad you're here. Glad to be here. And full announcement is his council person, a council member, Carol Fife. For people who don't know Carol, maybe outside the Bay Area, Carol is many things, but her official title, at least one official title, is she is on the city council here in Oakland and doing a phenomenal job of trying to push forward some, some good policies, but also build power as well. So what do we want to talk about overall in the broad sweep of the conversation, Carol, is this question of, of how do we actually govern and build power simultaneously? Because in my mind, I mean, I, I say in my snarky terms that sometimes we speak truth to power and power don't want to listen. And so we got to have power, actually. And we got to run stuff so people can have better housing, better jobs, and so forth. And, and so we'll, we're getting, we were used to throwing bricks and getting some short-term gains but we actually need to put our hands on the lever of power themselves, and you've done that. So I want to explore why you're doing that, explore what's been your experience so far, and, and those sort of things. So it should be a good ride, okay? Um, so one question I have initially, you know, when I think about elected officials, oftentimes some elected officials, they see themselves being simply office holders. And see that being a way to actually maybe improve our people's conditions. And the worst of those folk are simply careerists looking for 
I got a job for four years. Next up is something else, right? But I see you different. I, I see you being really a movement person, you know? And at this point in time, you're not you're that official. But from my perspective, that's not your person, persona, simply. You're a movement person who not kind of inside the house, you might say. You maintain your movement sensibilities. Is that kind of accurate description or did you get it, get it wrong? Are you a closet well, careerist? I didn't, didn't know about it. <laughs> no, I'm not a closet careerist. Absolutely not. Um, and I'm happy that you see it that way. I, I'm happy that you see me as a movement person um, in the same way. Sometimes people say that we are spiritual, be- uh, spiritual beings having physical experiences, but we are energetic beings. Um, I am a movement person having a political experience. And I would actually challenge you, Mr. Pitts, on me having my hands on the lever of power. Um, I get to see how the sausage is made in the sausage factory, but I will always, as a movement person, believe that the power is with the people because I'm, I'm finding that the more I'm isolated from being able to organize in the streets, from being able to have mass demonstrations, from being able to do the door knocking, um, all of the things that COVID has made more difficult to do, the more I've, I'm alienated from that power base. Those are the individuals, those are the people that can actually move things and have been able to do that in Oakland to get us to a point where now the folks that are really in power, the folks who have their hands on economic resources, land resources, and all those kinds of things are concerned about the shift in the structural uh, manifestation of power, so-called power on the city council. And so uh, I just wanted to share that, but you know. Yeah, this is good. Good, um, kind of deeper dive into something. So, what I meant um, can be either unclear or inaccurate. One of the two, right? It, 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 is that policies are important for people's lives, and the people who have the capacity to say yay or nay on a policy, I call them kind of power brokers, hands on the levers. Now, what I heard you say is that there's some other people with power out there besides. Consummate person, Fife, and other folk. And that's really correct. And, and so that leads me to a, a question then. If we think that we're, we're both correct, okay, that, that both we have city council people who have power, they, they can say yes or no to a policy, but also sometimes the conditions on which they vote are determined by other people. How do you see that kind of situation in terms of, yes, you can say yes or no on policies, but now we have other people who kind of set the terms of the conversation sometimes and kind of constrain and shape your possibilities. Does that make sense what I'm asking? It, it does. And, and I think that is the challenge that I find myself in wanting to make that transformative um, uh, shift in policymaking to uh, address some of the historic harms that we've seen impact not just Oakland, but across the country, around the world, really. Um, but because I exist inside of larger macrocosmic conditions, um, it really puts into perspective what power is. Um, and so organizing to me is the way to help balance that, that inequity. And so, yes, ha- have our hands on levers, are able to pass policy, but I'm also seeing the limitations of even that influence right? Because I've been in office now for 18 months. There's a ballot initiative uh, coming before voters in um, November to create term limits. And many residents of Oakland, many people who are part of neighborhood organizations, um, just community organizing, are saying that that ballot initiative was influenced to stop people like me from being able to, to stay in the city long enough to see that transformative shift. So this is a way that um, even shifts in power are trying to be regulated through people in the background who are writing policy that come before us that make it onto the ballot in front of voters. So um, just in in short, to try to answer your question more succinctly, um, the, the larger context makes the work that we are trying to do challenging, but that much more necessary, I think, um, because shift can happen. It's just, uh, it's just a lot more challenging than I think people really understand because 
you know, we're dealing with centuries of entrenched, um, you know, supremacist politics. So it's going to take a little bit, but you know, 18 months, by the time I get to two years, we're going to have it all done. We're going to have it all figured out. Sounds good. We'll have another episode to celebrate the victories. Okay. Yeah. Um, but why did you make that move though, Carol? Why'd you go from kind of the community activism? You were, you were um, ED of, of ACE Oakland. Why'd you move from there into becoming a city council person? Well, the Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment is a statewide organization in California. I was the director of the Oakland office and um, there was, there was a lot going on in the city at the, at that time. And quite frankly, I did not want to run for office. Um, I help people uh, run field campaigns who want to run for office. I help people get acclimated to the space if they're interested in, in, in those things. But um, I was on team Cat Brooks for district three, because when she ran for mayor previously, she did really, really well in the district. And um, that was the trajectory that was supposed to happen or that was uh, planned. And, you know, late into the game, Kat said, you know what, I'm going to put other parts of my career first and I'm not going to run for city council. So that kind of threw the community into a tailspin, like, okay, now what do we do? And so I uh, tried to find other individuals to run. Um, we even discussed some of the moms for Moms for Housing potentially running as a slate. Um, and no one wanted to do that. And so because I was in the field looking, uh, there were a lot of my friends in labor, a lot of my friends in community organizations, a lot of the youth that I, I work with that mentor me and that um, had been organizing around police um, brutality at that time were like, can you just do it? And so it moved from not, can you just do it to, we don't have any other choice. And because you are a servant of the work that we are doing, because you're a servant to the people, because um, you know how to do this, it makes sense if you would run. And so it took me a while. I didn't get into the race until what, like three and a half months before election day. And, you know, I ran, raised more money than any other candidate for a district office. And uh, it was it was an exciting time. You ran and you won. Congratulations. I ran um, and I did win. Condolences yeah. is more appropriate. <laughs> yeah, um, I was I was um, on a, a like a, a candidate interview process yesterday. Well, uh, around for, for the California Working Families Party and looking people running for mayor here in Oakland. And the moderator is saying, in the, each person is talking, saying, "Well, um, what did you say that?" People who ran for mayor have a lot of, what you say, like, it's some phrase that was that was congratulatory. Some said, "Oh, you mean crazy, right?" I said, "Yeah, that may be the same thing. It's a tough job you're doing." But as an outsider, I really have have liked what I've seen so far, in terms of your capacity to both combine the vision of the broader change we want, but also the nitty gritty of got to actually work. And, you know, we don't have nine kilo fives. We have people who are with you, but not all nine. And so how do we kind of work in a way to make it work? So you've done a great job so far. I can see so far. Wow. Thank you for saying that because it it, it is hard. And I, I do question myself often, especially with a lot of the opposition. And um, even though I, I say like it's, it's t- difficult and I, sometimes I wonder why I made that decision. Um, I think it is extremely rewarding, especially when I'm able to get back into community. Um, and, and hear people say, thank you for that um, rent increase that didn't go into into play, or thank you for funding violence prevention, or thank you for just the myriad of things that they say, um, and thank you for your vision. It, it, it reiterates why I made the decision to do what I did. So, so thank you for, for noticing, Stephen, uh, that, makes, that makes it make sense to me and worthwhile. I appreciate hearing that. Council member, I wanted to ask, and it's very clear in your, the, how rooted as an organizer you are. Like, it's just runs through everything you talk about, the way you talk about it. You can see, um, hear the lilt in your voice as you talk about door knocking and being in community with people and having people out and in, in the streets expressing their power collectively. Um, I wonder, like, the, the way, um, 
it's somewhat used to run in the past because y'all are transforming Oakland and it still runs in many of the other cities around the country is folks get to come in and get their three minutes with maybe a staff member and speak their piece about what they want to see. And, you know, sort of the expectation is that the elected leader makes a decision about in the best interest, sort of hearing, but not necessarily taking seriously. And I'm hearing you talk about a transformation of the relationship between people and those that are elected to run city and state government. And so I just wanted to hear you talk a little bit more about like, what does it mean to be an organizer in elected office and how are you approaching this job differently? I'm approaching it differently by making sure that, especially when major decisions come before the council that are specific to my district, that I do my due diligence to get input from individuals in the district. So um, I work with organizations who um, are intentional about access needs to people with different languages and abilities. Um, I try to have town halls to allow the, the public to have more than two minutes to speak about the issues that they care about. Uh, the current configuration of the council uh, makes it difficult to actually hear community voice. And because I am still active in, in movement business, um, I still have my finger on the pulse of, of how people are feeling about some things, even controversial issues like whether or not to build a stadium in my district. Um, regardless of how you feel about, you know, the Oakland A's, I want to hear the people who live around the location where the stadium will be built. And so that's caused uh, some individuals great pain. And I understand that. But the point is, if we're going to invest millions or potentially billions of dollars that will impact generations to come, I think we should um, maybe just overdo how much people get to say in in the matter. And um, I, I just want to make sure that the decisions I make are not just my decisions, that my decision is informed by a mass group of individuals whose uh, you know, lives are going to be impacted by, by what I choose to vote for. So um, that's just a, an example, I think, that's on people's minds right now. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think it also touches what you're also, I'm hearing also embedded there speaking to the balance of listening to your base, you know, the folks that, the people that you are, you know, whose voices you're bringing with you to City Hall. And also thinking about what can we do now and what do we want to do over the long haul? Because that's sort of thinking about just the nitty gritty of like, there's a proposal to build a new A stadium, you know, in the middle of downtown and could mean some, some people get displaced out of the neighborhood, all the things that are associated with that. Um, two, I think a lot of the long-term vision that you've been leading on for your vision for housing and just housing and um, the state rich large, but specifically in Oakland through the Moms for Housing struggle. And so I'm just curious about like, how do you balance those two between like just the incremental and the visionary and the transformational in the work? That's a great question. And so I also wanted to add, it's not just my vision for the future. It's also my understanding of the past because past policy has not included uh, the voices of the people who are primarily impacted. I mean, the reasons that I had to push for um, a, a report from our city staff around the impacts of displacement and urban renewal on Black families in West Oakland is because those voices were ignored. Those 5,100 homes has um, been stated by by this research that was done by our Department of Race and Equity as costing the Black community upwards of $3 billion of lost wealth. And so those are the things I want to tackle. And it doesn't always make me a favorite uh, with city staff or with, with some people in the community or the, the folks who feel like it's a zero-sum game, like if we create equity, then somehow other people lose. But balancing out those different voices or competing desires is, is, is a challenge. And I, I just go in with the understanding that I can't be friends with everyone. That's not my goal. My goal is to heal harm and to 
do that while trying to maintain a viable and um, thriving district and city. So it's a challenge because a lot of the resources that we utilize to ensure that we can create that thriving economy and thriving city come from folks who've been a part of creating the harm, right? So, so it's a, it's, it's a deep challenge that often forces contradictions, but I just don't shy away from those contradictions. I'm like, let's, let's have the conversation. And then only through having those honest conversations can we come up with the best course of action. And I, I think sometimes I'm, I'm finding in politics that folks don't want to have those uncomfortable dialogues because, you know, people are really sensitive. I mean, I'm sensitive too, but not about people's lives and, and making the best decisions. Now, I was going to ask you, um, what do you see some of the broad challenges and opportunities of progressive governance? But I want to first have you define what it means to have progressive governance. What's it actually mean? Ooh, we've talked about this before, Steve. What What is progressive? What does that mean? And I'm not going to be the one to try to define it right now. I just know everybody in Oakland wants to be one. Um, so who can be a Carol Fife progressive? What does it mean? I wouldn't even use the word. I wouldn't use the word to describe myself. Um, only because it gives some people a reference to what I might mean. But reality causes us to, well, if we're going to deal in reality, and I guess that's subjective to some degree, but um, if we want to live in a safe city or a clean city or an equitable city, then we have to wrestle with the ways that we have not been that to date. And I think it takes someone who's willing to um, to challenge the existing status quo in order to create equitable progress, not just for a small few, because that's what we reproduce in this country and in, in every corner of the nation. But if we're really talking about progress for everyone, that means some folks got to give it up a little bit, right? That means we have to do things radically different but that is the only way I think we can actually have a semblance of, um, I guess, sanity in, in, in this space in order for people to address crime. Like that's one of the biggest issues on people's minds right now. You cannot do that without looking at how communities have been disadvantaged and disinvested in. So don't talk to me about an uptick in crime if you're not talking to me about closing schools, disinvesting in schools, not paying teachers, taking people's homes, not providing health care, and all of the other ways that wealth has been extracted from communities. And so if we're having a, a conversation devoid of origins, then we're not having a real conversation. So to be progressive is to be able to look at what's happened for a Carol progressive, if we have to give it a name. Um, means being able to wrestle with history so we can come up with the best course of action in the present so we can create a thriving future. If you're not willing to do that and not willing to call what it is what it is, then I, I'm looking at you sideways and I'm like, mm, mm-mm. But given the definition now of a Carol Five progressive, how do you execute that? What are the challenges and actually bring it to, to fruition? It's, it's, um, that's why I need you all to help me. Come on, Lauren, Stephen, help me out and figure out like, how do we do this? Cause I, it can't be Carol that's doing it because there's a huge push right now to co-op the work that I'm doing, um, to water it down, um, to say, uh, that I'm somehow corrupt. This happens with women oftentimes in, in public office, not, not just corrupt, but, um, somehow, Uh, I'm noticing on Twitter, I get a lot of white men saying that I've been bought and sold, which I find some like on a, on a deeply cellular level, um, some problem with the way that I'm, I'm referred to. Um, but how we get there, um, how we get to this level of progressive, of course we, we have to organize for it. We have to get better about shifting the narrative and doing the work and being visible about what that looks like. But there's some deep work that individuals have to do, um, as well as uh, ourselves uh, who are going to push for something different uh, to hold our allies accountable who, you know, get it, it's, it's easy to get scared in these positions if you're connected to the position. 
it's easy to get scared of losing a title if you're connected to the title versus the reason that you have it in the first place. So uh, there's powerful entities that put in money into elections and campaigns and um, messaging and creating a reality. We have to be as fervent about those um, organizations and individuals who are often in opposition to us to out-organizing them. And we don't tend to have as much money. So we have to be really smart and strategic about how we build that power to create a so-called progressive base to get done what we need to get done. Let me throw something out to you, see how it sounds. And I think you move in this, this, this direction. You can kind of clarify and anchor me and those sort of things. But a lot of times in, in, in movement spaces, the discussion between needing a movement and needing an organization, as if they are, are, are uh, posing to one another, I think it's a false kind of posing those two things. But I want to add a third thing. That's the question of how to institutionalize the people's voices. Because we can build organizations that can be vibrant, but I doubt we'll always have every member of the community in an organization. And so there needs some way to get people's voices who may be unaffiliated into the, the process of making decisions. And you've mentioned having town halls. Is that, that's been an example of trying to institutionalize this idea of people's voice. I thought I saw, and I'm really bad on acronyms, something like C4C something. That's some sort of ongoing thing you're going on. Am I right about that? What's yeah. the C4C thing? Care for community are the individuals um, with the acronym C4C, many of whom volunteered on my campaign. I had uh, upwards of 600 people that turned out to support my campaign, which to me for a district campaign symbolized people's deep desire for doing things differently. Um, so since I got in the race in July of 2020, um, a lot of those individuals have continued to organize around the things that I ran on. And those are the folks who, who made up that organization. And, and they're, um, they've, they've door knocked every week since July, 2020. And it is about bringing people into the process who may be unaffiliated keeping people informed about what's happening in city hall and how they can be involved. And if they're not able to make it out, getting information from them through surveys, through conversations, through inviting them to community events uh, about what's going on in my district. And when I ran, I haven't had the opportunity to do it yet, but I just went and got my maps uh, last month to break the district down into clusters where I am having regular cluster meetings and involving people um, who, not, not with the typical structure, I'm engaged with the typical structures of the neighborhood councils. So I'm not ignoring existing um, organizations, but there are people who, like you said, will never be a member or never go to um, an NCPC meeting that I want to hear from. And so I'm, I'm creating the structure because I think that's what's needed even outside of an organization outside of a mass movement, there has to be some structure to be able to capture that voice and the sentiment of what people need. And so um, it, it's, it's imperative if we're going to make any kind of sustained change to have something that can hold the elements needed to push that change. You know, when you were talking, I thought about the fact that on paper, we have a democratic process, but it's become kind of ossified in many ways. And so you mentioned having the neighborhood councils. That's an example of, on paper, well, duh, it makes sense. But over time, given the way that governance gets further and further away from the people, those kind of structures that should be a vehicle for input become simply in the part of the state, you might say, of the opposition. And so there's a need to find new ways to bring in new blood and those sort of things. That's really, that's really important thing that kind of the thinking through how we have on paper democratic institutions or, or processes that may not actually be democratic and need to have other ones as, as well. That's super cool. They are, that is probably what's been most revelatory to me because I was, I wouldn't even consider myself an activist before I, I, I um, won for city council. But when I was running, that's how all the mainstream uh, media uh, portrayed me. That's the word that they use, but they use it as a pejorative. 
um, Carol Fife activist when I was like the director of an organization, right? Um, I was an organizer. I was a part of organizing numerous things for two decades in the city of Oakland. But they tried to create this narrative around me of, oh, she's just an activist. She goes to protest. Well, no, I've organized some significant, um, not, not just uh, movements in, in the city, but also legislation. I've been behind some significant legislation in the city of Oakland that I'm, I'm not being credited for. So I, I bring that up because um, I'm seeing now the individuals that were like, you should stop protesting. You should stop organizing. You should stop yelling because that's not how you get change. If you want to get change, get out of the streets and vote. If you want to see change, engage in electoral process. If you don't like who your electeds are, or what they're doing, run for office. That's how you do things the right way. So then do that, win. And now I'm in a position where, okay, well, yeah, you're in, but now the administration that is supposed to implement the laws that you pass to create this change, don't do what you're directing them to do through the legislation that you create. And so then people still end up frustrated. So instead, instead of having activists and organizers that are angry, now you have residents who might not have that political bent to get out into the streets now wanting to get out into the streets. So I'm like, either way, you're going to send people to me because I'm going to organize even the anger that's rising up from not engaging in listening to what the people are telling you. So we're creating a whole new crop of activists because um, people aren't being housed. People aren't, um, you know, seeing their city being taken care of and maintained. People aren't seeing a host of things that tax Pair dollars are supposed to pay for, but they want to shift the narrative, the administration, the people in, you know, real power positions want people angry so they can blame so-called progressives for the outcomes. And it's backfiring because it's really causing individuals to just be um, apathetic and angry about democracy. So um, I, I can, I can work in those elements. I mean, you're really describing a transform, like a transforming how inside the state works, and I'm speaking of the state in the big sense, and outside the state, right? So like there's structures on both ends, right? Or I would just say pathways in on both ends. Like you, you clearly are a pathway in inside, operating inside, but um, creating these new structures and new pathways for different voices to come up um, and to be heard and to be included in the process um is really it's it's very transformational and interesting it does remind me of some of the models we my organization sort of was looking at in how barcelona has been some of the elected leaders in barcelona have been trying to do the same thing of it's not that you elected us because we're brilliant we're going to go into these closed rooms and figure out and solve all your problems for you that this is going to be a co- leading conversation with the community and elected leadership. I'm wondering about, you know, because I I make an assumption that you're in relationship with other um, city leaders in other parts of the country, just because the nature of the work. And I'm just wondering, are there other bright spots or other people you want to talk about that are starting to lift up this sort of transformational way of governing, of moving towards co-governance rather than governance? <laughs> I actually had plans to go to Barcelona and um, Copenhagen this August. Um, I got really sick in July and then I got really uh, paranoid about getting sick uh, overseas or just like something blowing on me in the wind and just getting sick. It was very traumatic. So um, I had planned on spending time with some, some folks over there, some organizers and elected officials um, who I do think are moving in the right direction. Um, but, you know, we're going to have to save that for Zoom. And that's that's part of how I spend my time is, is trying to understand what's worked in other places. I do feel like in some of the, um, the countries like Denmark, uh, some, of the, some of the countries who have democratic socialism but um, are doing things better than we're doing it here, it tends to be racially homogenous. And I believe that in America, if we don't deal with the race issue, 
um, directly and thoroughly and intentionally and consistently will continue to replicate the problems that we have. And, and that's included in the, our public education system, mass incarceration, all of our systems, all of our systems of, of people activity. Um, so I think that's, that's a little different uh, in, in some of the places I've been looking at, but um, I'm really interested in social housing. And there are some folks who are, are doing it right, I believe. And so um, definitely trying to be a student so that I can bring some of those lessons here. You know, I had like a thousand questions to ask the curl. And then, then you brought up a, th- a question in thousand and one. Um, that's at race, how do you deal with race? And so I have a sense um, how things are done, should be done in a labor union context. And I'm not clear you apply that in a, in a non-union, in a community context. Um, I give my thoughts, you respond to them, give your vision of how, how, how we do this, right? So one concern I have is that we talk at people, not with people around race. And I think it's important to talk with people. Um, and that's to me is in either space, in the union space or in a community space. So I hope that, that we would talk with people around race, not at people. Um, I think also it's important, you know, in a workplace, the commonality is the boss, that we all get a check from so-and-so, and that's the commonality. I think in a community context, the people we care about, not the folk who make tons and tons of money, people, people we care about, I think a commonality is they're all suffering under some sense of neoliberalism, or capitalism, and what you want to call it, the system, that's the commonality. And, and a lot of times we, under, we don't fully walk through those commonalities because we're so clear about the racial differences that are part of the system as well. So those are my first thoughts. But given you say we had to talk with deal with race, then how do you see that unfolding? Having a way to, to go forth in the positive policies, but do it in a, in a country where race is central, both in organizing and dividing people. A 10 second answer. Don't worry about it. Um, I would like to, I would like to understand more about what you mean when you say we, or if, if you could give me examples of talking at people about race versus with people. Yeah, if you could um, say more. So you want to get me in trouble, huh? Oh, okay. I thought I was supposed to get you in trouble. Okay, if we can, if we can play a little dance, who gets in trouble first, right? Um, I think the way we use history is a delicate question. Um, for for a lot of folk, history is 1968. Okay. And so to talk about what might have happened in the 19th century or earlier is like talking about the Ice Age. And, and so when I think about um, if I ran the world, if I was you no know, council member Fife and I ran the world, what, what I would want to do is clearly lay out how history has impacted something concrete today and not a generic issue of races in America because we could have no, there have been books written about the, the founding fathers and what they did wrong and wrong, wrong, and maybe a little bit right and so forth, right? But I think that while that's correct, and we could talk about the original sins being the question of African slavery and Native American genocide, that's correct. The question is how an understanding of that informs the capacity to get people to want to have social housing today. And I think sometimes, and that's not saying this is your idea at all, Carol. So that means just talking now, so you forced me to say something, okay? So some people, um, we focus a lot on the weaknesses of the Constitution and those things, and who was a slaveholder and those things, but we don't talk don't talk about how the problems today should be changed. And oh, by the way, their roots not just in today or yesterday, but years earlier. That make a little more sense. It did make a little bit more sense. And now I know the organization you're talking about and I should call, but no, I'm just, I'm messing with you. Um, So I I don't think, I think that is the narrative shift that I'm talking about, right? I think that's what the organizers that are outside of city hall 
can connect with legislators on, which is what I did when I brought forward the Black New Deal. It, we, we moved it forward in 2020. It got co-opted. That's fine. But now I'm bringing it back in a more substantive way that says, if you care about an uptick in crime because of COVID, you might want to consider looking at why certain areas that have been uh, redlined or, um, or bulldozed in, in places where wealth could have been created through people being able to hold onto their homes and having those property taxes go into the public school system and educate uh, young people in a very robust way so they could get uh, living wage jobs. Um, if we look at why that wasn't able to happen, if we look at why certain people were relegated to living in the most toxic places in the city of Oakland and how that has had impacts on health and um, not just on the individual, but the entire community, then we can say when we see these things happening in East Oakland and West Oakland, there is a policy implication and history to those outcomes. We're, we haven't done the research or, or we don't even need to do any more research. We know the CDC declared racism a public health crisis. And so we're making steps forward and we're nibbling around the edges, but the, the comprehensive policy hasn't uh, kept up with or have even started to address the historic harms that, that racism has created. So what I want to do as a legislator is get people to understand in the same way that activism and organizing had to get people to understand that Black people were um, disproportionately being impacted by police violence, that also Black people have been disproportionately impacted by uh, legislation and policy that has created the outcomes that lead to um, the, the social, some of the social ills that we see today. And if we can say, and if we can look at it with the compassion and the understanding of history to say, oh, this has an origin and this over here, let's change this now so we can start to rectify it and, and, and heal our future by addressing the past. That's the kind of legislator that I want to be, because that's not about just one race of people or one socioeconomic group of people, although it does, um, you know, in, in my case and in my district, address specific folks, Black folks. And I'm not apologetic about that. Um, this is about everybody. This is about everybody because the better that the 70% of the homeless population in Oakland whom are Black do, the better everybody does. So we should see this as not just an issue of um, making people feel bad, whatever. That's your personal burden to bear. And y'all should go get therapy about how that negatively impacts you. But my reality is that if we heal the harm over here, everybody does better. So we should all think collectively about how to do that. I, I also think there's some, I so agree with you. I was nodding along like we were in church service because it was, it, it's just right on all points. And I'm also thinking we also have to be able to talk to poor and working class white folks about the way that racism has harmed them. Like it, it, I was like, it, it is so insidious. It has convinced you that social housing should not exist, which would help you because black immigrant native people might get in there as well. And we have to be able to start. I think that is real history in present. We have to talk about both reaction, how we reacted to COVID when the numbers started coming back and you could look at in some places like New York city, who was getting sick and who wasn't and then how the reaction sort of rolled out from there and sort of really talk about that may have impacted certain folks first, but then it impacted everybody at the end of the day. So how do we sort of talk about that racism is insidious and people of color bear the burden, but everybody, it's, it's going to roll on your door one day. I'm also thinking about with housing. Remember that article that was in the New York Times a while ago about folks in upstate New York, like farmers that were getting gentrified out of farming in upstate New York? Like, so, I mean, it's just sort of like what gets done in the hood is eventually finding its way elsewhere. It's just we are sort of usually first stop for the new exploitative practice. I mean, we saw that with the drug war, right? Um, and, and crack was such a dirty drug that only happened in the ghettos. And now, you know, with the opioid crisis, you know, it's, it's the same when people are experiencing extreme poverty, lack of access to mental health care and um, physical health care, 
um, no way to address uh, globalization and the loss of jobs. You know, there's not really much else that people can do. Um, and, and they sometimes turn to illicit substances in order to, to numb that pain. And that's just a certain group of people. We're not even talking about folks who've been injured and, and get addicted. And so, but we see, we saw how that was messaged differently. And I feel like I'm preaching to the choir here. It's something that we all know. Um, but you know, the outcomes are still the same. I'm, I'm seeing that now with fentanyl and, and its impact on the Bay area. Um, but that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother podcast. So given we have this one podcast, not another one right now, um, if you had to lay out what you think are your, say, two or three biggest accomplishments as city council person in your 18 months in office, what would they be? Uh, I'm really proud of the work to support the Reimagining Public Safety Task Force and the investment um, that we were made, were able to make um, in our first in my first, I guess, budget as a city council member and sending resources to the Department of Violence Prevention to address violence before it happens versus responding and reacting to it. Um, it got a lot of um, airplay and that people were saying that it was defunding the police when there was, that was just nothing, uh, that, that there was nothing true about that statement. The fact is that no one went into the police uh, budget or their bank account and took out $18 million. Um, it's just the decision of where to put that money. And I, I, I was really proud of that because it showed a step towards um, doing things differently. And that's the courage I think is, that's needed. But you know, I think what, what we didn't necessarily uh, realize at the time was a reaction, the reaction that the Police Officers Association had and their uh, ability to influence the media and not only the media, but withhold services in order to create a reality that didn't exist in order to prove why we should never do anything transformative, never do anything that, that tells us what to do or uh, puts us in a, in a situation where we have to, to do our business differently because we will hold you hostage. So I'm proud because we had an impact on prevention, but I'm also happy that we're, we, we were able to force a conversation that is requiring police to do differently. And, and that means tell the truth about the reality of, of the work that they do. I'm also proud of um, some of the things that we were able to put in front of the voters this year, which is like the ballot measures that I hope people support, um, an infrastructure bond, to really invest deeply in transportation uh, necessities in the city of Oakland, as well as affordable housing. Uh, I was really pleased that we were able to get a ballot initiative in front of voters for this fall that will authorize the development of um, low rent units and low rent units and social housing units in the city. Um, proud of our ability to decrease what was uh, slated to be a massive rent increase on 60% of Oakland's residents who are also renters in the city of Oakland. Um, I've been really happy just to do some other things that people will never know, like making sure people had groceries or um, they weren't evicted. Little stories that will never make the news, um, making sure mothers on Mother's Day had hot meals and um, lots of other things, cleaning up burnt out buses in, in front of people's homes um, you know, spending time with unsheltered folks at Wood Street to try to counter the the lack of um, information that they've re received about um, their living status. Lots of lots of things that I'm proud of. Um, and but I don't want to take up the rest of the time. I have a list. Um, I'm so glad you asked to be a council person. By the way, I really am. So thank mm -hmm. you. Um, really. Um, where do you see you and the movement you rep represent? being in three to five years? So I, not you personally. I know you'd be probably governor of the state of California. Uh, so beyond that, but, but, but seriously, um, the movement, where do, you, where do you see this movement of trying to transform Oakland into an equitable city being three to five years? This is probably the most 
painful realization that I'm coming to, which is I hope that we're able to stave off the displacement and disappearance of Black people from the city of Oakland. I'm very concerned about our future and our ability to stay here. Um, Sometimes I get really concerned about people's own self-interest outweighing the needs of the collective. Um, I found a lot of people who look like me are more interested in status and things than um, just the collective well-being. So capitalism is a hell of a drug. And um, the way that it influences people to not be able to think outside of a box or not think outside of existing structures for transformative change is it, it, something I, I, I struggle with and pains me daily. Um, so I hope that, number one, in five years that our little rock is still rotating on its axis. The number of fires that I see throughout California and the rising temperatures throughout the the nation are very concerning for me and how our lack of responsibility around climate and environment are helping to fuel um, some of our most fundamental challenges is deeply concerning. So I hope that we're able to see past our own individual sense of self to understand that we are connected. And if we don't care about each other just a little bit more, then we will all perish collectively. So we're going to do something collectively. I just hope it's flourish versus perish. Um, and I hope to, to have played a little role in the latter. Or would it be the former? I don't know. So Carol, beginning to wind things down now. And, and I always ask my guests about books and music. I love those two things. So what, what books are you, are you reading now? I've started several books that are right next to me on my nightstand, but the one that I continue to return to is a book that I was given by a city staffer, a director, actually. It's The Cross of Redemption, The Uncollected Writings of James Baldwin. And um, brilliant, beautiful mind. And so sometimes when I get a little depressed or frustrated, um, I just think about the times in which he lived and the genius uh, of that era and the the black brilliance of that era. And I read some some James Baldwin and I feel a little bit better about life. That sounds cool. How about music? What music keeps you going? Oh, it's so weird. And, you know, I'm, I'm not really into music. I think I've probably bought three albums in my lifetime. But um, I, I, I try to start the day with um, Sia's Unstoppable. So uh, that's what I wake up and do my morning routine to. What's wrong with you with music? Why, why, why aren't you into music? What's up with that? Seriously. I love music. I sing. Um, I, I have it on while I'm cleaning. I don't know. I think my mind is always full of wanting to get more information. I never give it a time to, to relax or, or break. But I will say that, you know, on Sundays when I'm doing my laundry and folding and cleaning up, I, uh, I watch, um, the man from the man who fell from space. Um, yeah, whatever it is, David Bowie was the original one. And they, the way that they like talked about jazz and centered jazz I was like, okay, I got to get back into my uh, my Charlie Parker and, um, and and listening to it because the way that they just made it uh, just beautiful and, and cosmic, I was just like, okay, I need to start listening to music more. I started watching that, but I kind of stopped. So I, I haven't got to that jazz piece. I need to, need to pick up again. I do love jazz. I really do. And I do too. And my kids, my kids are are jazz lovers as well, and they're ten years apart. And it's so funny that. My older son really likes contemporary jazz, and my daughter, who you know just made eighteen, um, is really into old school, like Ella Fitzgerald, Louis Armstrong, and um, you know s- some of the greats from um, back in the day. It's interesting to see them because they all they're always playing music. I don't have to because my kids are always playing music. Sounds good. Carol, this has been great. Thanks for coming on. I'm glad we made this work. Me too. Thank you, Steve. This was a this is a wonderful conversation. I'm happy that I was able to to sit down and rap with you for a little bit. We gotta talk some more, okay? And Lauren, it's great being with you again. 
Yes. And thank you, Councilmember Fife. And one more episode will be done. I'll see you all next time, okay? See Take you next care. time. Take care. Be well. Carol made an important distinction between the power to enact policies and the power to shape the larger terrain where we do battle. This distinction is important because it puts into proper perspective the strengths and weaknesses of both arenas. While it's not required that everyone fight in both arenas, without understanding those strengths and those limitations, our ability to maximize our efforts where we do choose to fight is constrained. Well, that's all for this episode of Black Work Talk. Till next time, stay safe and be well.